welcome to Population Health Plugin, a show highlighting current public health topics in our community and things of interest to students across the university. My name is Elena Kidd, and I'm a program manager in the Office of Public Health Practice at the UAB School of Public Health. Today, we are joined by Dr. Michelle Kong, who is an associate professor in the Department of Pediatrics at the UAB School of Medicine and co-founder of Culture City, a nonprofit that raises not only awareness, but promotes a community-shifting acceptance of children with autism and other sensory needs. She is here to talk about rethinking accessibility and explain how Culture City is creating a community of acceptance and inclusion for all individuals with unique disabilities. And thank you so much for being here today. So first, for listeners who may not be familiar, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit more about Culture City, its missions and programs. So Culture City is a nonprofit that is focused on accessibility and inclusion of all individuals, regardless of their needs. So we offer many different programs and we have several uh, initiatives, including, for instance, giving out Lifebox, which is a wandering prevention toolkit. We give out scholarships for therapies, tablets for folks who are nonverbal and needed as a communicative device. But lately, our focus has been on the Culture City Sensory Inclusive Initiative. The main goal with the Sensory Inclusive Initiative is to really shift our mindset in terms of what it means to have accessibility and how to really train a venue or a space to become truly inclusive for individuals with uh, sensory challenges. And by sensory inclusive, what does it mean for a location, a venue to become sensory inclusive? And how is that different from sensory friendly? Sure. So a sensory friendly event is a one-off event. So these are events, for instance, where certain provision is made for that particular time. So for instance, if you had a sensory friendly movie night, it might be one where the lights are dim or the volume is turned down and there are specific, perhaps specific groups of volunteers who are there that are to sort of meet the needs of the individuals who are coming for that sensory-friendly event. Now, the issue with sensory-friendly event, although it's better than none, is that it is often only limited to that particular location and that particular time. And it's one where we're saying, all right, if you have a sensory need, if you have autism, you have PTSD, or whatever it is, the group that's being targeted, you're saying you can only come on this Tuesday when we're making this provision for you. If you're coming on Wednesday or Thursday, well, sorry, we're not really equipped to serve you and to have you at our location. So again, while it is better than nothing, what we realize is that it's certainly not enough because even if you had one, two, three, four of these events, it really is a minuscule part of that person's life. And so having that in mind, you know, what we wanted to do was to push the envelope a little bit more and push the boundary a little bit more and say, is there a way that we can make an venue or an event inclusive? And what that means is is all time is for all individual, is for all guests. And it doesn't matter what your challenges are. It doesn't matter if you are a child with autism. It doesn't matter if you're an adult with PTSD. It doesn't matter if you're someone with Dementia, what we know is functionally a lot of your challenges are the same. And so how do we make an event or a venue sensory inclusive? We do that via one, training. Mm -hmm. So there's a fairly extensive training that happens for all the 
different individuals that come in contact with the guests. And it could be anywhere from security to front desk to volunteers to ticketing personnel. As long as you have a potential contact with the guest, you get trained. And the training, of course, would entail things such as learning what it means to have sensory sensitivity, what does that look like, how can you help prevent it, how do you help someone who's having a meltdown, what sort of communication skill uh, tools that you can use, what sort of language to use. We focus a lot on people, uh, person first language, Language, and also teaching them you know, how to mitigate some of these challenges and what are some of the approaches to use if a person is having a meltdown. So the training certainly is a big foundation of a venue becoming sensory inclusive. Um, and then beyond that, we work with the venue to look at their entry and exit policies. We do a fairly detailed assessment of the venue to look at specific locations that could be a quiet zone, that could be a zone that's identified as a loud zone and so therefore in a person seeing a signage that says headphone zone may then be prompted put on a headphone and things like that. Um, depending on the venue they might also be sensory rooms that we create and so sensory rooms are rooms where it is a place that is safe, that's calming, that a person that can go to decompress and then be able to leave and go back to the festivity or the game or the, you know, whatever it is that they're attending. So I think the biggest difference, if you had to distill it down between sensory friendly versus sensory inclusive is that sensory friendly is one-off events. It's specific to a particular group of people, a particular location, and a particular time. And sensory inclusive is saying, you know what, it doesn't matter what day it is, it doesn't matter who you are, what the barriers you have, as long as you functionally have this issue, we are here to meet your needs. We are here to help you enjoy this experience and we have the tools to uh, have that be a very positive experience. That's great. And you found that more and more places are becoming sensory inclusive. And you showed yes. us a map and it was cities all across the US and you said even different countries? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we started in Birmingham and it's something that we're super proud of, you know, being from Birmingham. We love that it was an idea to germinated from here and has since gone to all the different states in America and in other countries as well. So we're in Australia, we're in Canada, and then in the United States, we are partners with all the major uh, sporting uh, venues, so including NBAs, NFLs, NHL, and um, all the other ones. And we're also in colleges, we're in universities, uh, we're in um, zoos and aquariums and parks. So essentially, you know, we don't try to discriminate in terms of the space. As long as it's one that has events for the community, we say, hey, you got to be trained, right? right? Because you might like music and you might like to go to a music festival, but for someone else, they may be like basketball and they like to go to a basketball event. And so, you know, we're, it, the, the gap is uh, certainly there, the need is certainly there, and there's a lot more to be done, but we're just slowly sort of chipping away right. at it uh, one city at a time, one state at a time, and one venue at a time. I read that you had a personal connection with autism. Would you mind sharing a little about your story and how your experiences served as motivation for founding Culture City? Sure. So we have a, our journey really started with our son Abram. He is 12 now and he was four when he was diagnosed with autism. He was a typical growing boy, you know, really happy and very gregarious and um, we didn't see any sort of signs that would have cued us to the fact that this was something that was in his future. But for him, he went through a period of regression when he was about two years of age and he started losing words 
and became really redrawn. And the child that we knew was seemingly just very far away. And ultimately, he was diagnosed with autism. And, you know, in a lot of ways, our life changed. Not so much that because he carried the diagnosis, but because functionally, having autism just meant different challenges for him. You know, we quickly realized, for instance, that very, you know, trivial sensory inputs, you know, ringing of the doorbell was a big one. Uh, the pitch of a crying baby was another large one. What really set him off and made it incredibly uh, difficult. And so it was hard to be in an environment that didn't quite understand him and didn't know how to meet his needs. And it was interesting because, you know, both of us are within the medical uh, community and we, it was such a difficult journey. And we felt like we're both plugged in into the medical field and we had such a huge resource and network at hand and yet it was so incredibly hard. It was hard going out to get a haircut. It was hard to go to swim in a public pool. And, you know, we, we, we've been kicked out from so many places that have lost count uh, and it ranged anywhere from, you know, something as small as a barber store to um, a much bigger uh, event. And, a lot of it wasn't because of anything, but because people didn't know how to meet him where he where he was and figuring out, you know, why he was doing some of the things that he was doing and how to sort of tailor that um, experience so that he could still be part of it and enjoy it. And so, you know, although it started as a personal journey, I think the shift also came when we started meeting a lot of other individuals and families. And so for a lot of them, for instance, they, um, some of them had autism and some of them uh, were actually even adults with PTSD. And we, what we realized that was so striking was that even though they all had different needs, functionally, their, their barrier was the same. It was sort of that social isolation that existed, the difficulty in being part of the community, and it was really eye-opening. Um, and so, you know, that was sort of the genesis of Culture City, and we really went into it with the intent of saying, how can we have this sort of mind shift and change the way our community thinks in how they regard these individuals and how to include them and accept them and meet them where they are. I'm sure you get this question a lot, but I saw that you spell Culture City with a K. Why with a K yeah. and not with a C? So uh, Culture City with a K is in a way sort of a little dig at not being status quo. You know, we, we, we uh, as you remember so vividly, we were sitting down in our um, study and we were you know, we were so moved by the need that was there, not just within our family, but with all these other families that we've encountered. And we said, it is not enough if it's one person changing. It really requires a cultural shift in how people thought about these individuals, their challenges and their unique needs and sort of meeting them where they are. And it required a shift in thinking and a shift in culture. And so, and we said, you know what, if we can do it in Birmingham, we can do it anywhere else. And so that's how we came up with Culture City. So it's an idea of changing the culture ultimately one city at a time and the K was because it was our dig at we don't want to be the same we don't want to do the all things repeatedly we want to be innovative we want to be front-facing you know we want to be trailblazers in this space because it was important it was important um, and it was impactful not just for the individual for the family and just for the community at large and you shared a lot about your successes in different areas of the country and worldwide, but what have been some of the biggest challenges you face in creating this culture of acceptance and inclusion? I think the biggest challenge is 
when dealing with the unknown, and especially with either in regards to individuals where because there's not that awareness yet, it's sort of an unknown for them, right? They don't even know that the problem exists because they don't have understanding of it. And so I think that was always the biggest initial barrier is helping them understand why this is important, why they should care, and why they should invest their time and their passion into it. And while that's the initial barrier, what we found is that once people see, it's hard to unsee. Once you realize that this is a problem, you see it everywhere. I mean, it is hard to unsee what you've seen. And with knowledge, I think, comes true power. And uh, we've been so fortunate and blessed that, you know, the folks within our team, and we have a huge team of individuals, they are really driven by passion and by heart. Um, we we kind of joke about it, but in some ways it's so true. You know, we call it impact equity, and that's what they have. You know, they have they they're all volunteers. They all have jobs that you know none of them gets paid, and they do it because of they see why it needs to be done. Wow, that's incredible. And so, what's what's next for Culture City? What are the next steps? What work still needs to be done? I think there's a lot that still needs to be done within the space. You know, although we are in more than 250 unique venues at this point. In fact, this morning we just launched with United Center at Chicago, which is so amazing. Um, there is still a ton to be done. There are still so many venues, so many public spaces. I mean, you name it. There is there is work to be done because ultimately, if you think about it, for us to be a truly inclusive community, it cannot just be limited to. MBA arenas. It cannot just be limited to university. It cannot just be limited to libraries. Mm-hmm. I mean, it doesn't matter if you're a small venue, a big mm-hmm. venue, or a giant size venue. Yeah. Um, it doesn't matter what kind of events you have because all of us have different needs and wants. And we should make it where it doesn't matter. It's right. always accessible to everybody within the community. And I'm just like grocery stores, movie oh, theaters. Absolutely. I mean, restaurants. Absolutely. Like yes. there are tons of spaces. Oh and yeah, absolutely. A lot of a lot of places that um, could definitely benefit from adopting that you know centering inclusion model. Definitely, absolutely. And so, how can individuals uh, make a difference in changing the culture of our community? How can we get involved? Um, I think there are many different ways that you can get involved. I think first is, of course, you know, learning about sensory sensitivities and what it means for the individuals is perhaps the first step because, again, with knowledge comes power. Um, I think really be a voice for these individuals in pushing that message of inclusion. You know, it was really striking to me, and it's and it's actually always, almost always the case when I ask a group of people to have a show of hand to say, you know, a person with a physical disability in a who's in a wheelchair, almost everybody will raise their hand and say, yes, I see the need. Yes, there is potential limitations with access to a space unless we modify it. But when you show a person who seemingly is able-bodied and looks just like you and me, almost always there is not a hand that goes up. So sometimes there's a few that goes up, but it's so important for us to realize that there is, you know, what you don't see doesn't mean it doesn't exist. If you don't see it, doesn't mean it doesn't exist. You know, these individuals with invisible disability, they have real challenges, they have real needs. So I think as um, someone within the community, you know, one is sort of really understanding this message and pushing this message. And two is, you know, being involved, you know, come join us with uh, what we do. We'd love to have volunteers. You know, we build sensory rooms. We do a lot of events. Uh, we certainly need volunteers, trainers. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, you know, a lot of these we provide at no cost to the families as well. 
Um, and so that, of course, requires the, you know, funds component, you know, do fun. Th and we have, you know, really, you know, fun events where we not just raise awareness and sort of impart the knowledge, we also raise funds for the families. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're really proud to say that we're impact driven and, you know, 100% of our funds goes back to the individuals and the families. And we have an overhead of less than 4%, which wow. is... Really which is wonderful. something that, yeah, which is something that we strive uh, mm -hmm. towards. Well, we're going to put your website up on um, the podcast. And we just want to thank you so much for being here. It was great learning more about Culture City and the impact Culture City has had in the lives of children living with autism and other sensory needs and their families. And thank you for listening. Please tune in next time for another episode of Population Health Plugin. Mm -hmm.